Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Lindsay Devon. I am Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. I also serve as Editor-in-Chief of Pharmacotherapy, an official journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today, we are talking with Dr. Mackenzie Grinalds. Dr. Grinalds is Assistant Professor at Cedarville University and a Clinical Pharmacy Specialist in Neurology at Miami Valley Hospital in Dayton, Ohio. Dr. Grinalds and her co-authors, Caleb Yoder, Zach Krause, Alita Chen, and Denise Running, contributed a systematic review to pharmacotherapy addressing an, an important therapeutic issue. Their article is titled, Scoping Review of Rational Polytherapy in patients with drug-resistant epilepsy. Uh, if I may call you uh, Mackenzie, uh, thank you for this timely review and welcome to the podcast. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's get started and I can uh, make a, an introductory comment. Witnessing or experiencing a seizure can be a, a very frightful experience for, I think, everyone involved, uh, parents, patients, and, and healthcare personnel. For patients who have previously been diagnosed with epilepsy and are being treated, I think a particular challenge can be the patient who does not respond adequately to treatment with a single anti-seizure medication. Your group has studied this situation and conducted a systematic review of the evidence for combining anti-seizure drugs. Would you begin and discuss how uh, this uh, concept of uh, drug-resistant epilepsy is recognized or defined? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question to start with. So in talking about the definition, uh, we have to determine whether or not a person has drug-resistant epilepsy or DRE. And thankfully, um, the International League Against Epilepsy or the ILAE commissioned a task force back in early 2000s to address this very question before their report was published in 2010. Researchers and clinicians used a variety of different kind of criteria for defining uh, drug-resistant epilepsy, so it's hard to make an evidence-based recommendation um, kind of before this time. And so, um, like I mentioned, their task force published their consensus definition in 2010 and really just tried to highlight being able to agree on a definition to improve patient care and facilitate clinical research. And so their proposed definition was failure of adequate trials of two tolerated and appropriately chosen and used anti-epileptic drug schedules, whether as monotherapies or in combination to achieve sustained seizure freedom. So that's a lot, but the definition kind of encompasses three different elements. The first being the number of medications a patient should try before drug-resistant epilepsy is identified. And then the second and third elements relate to seizure frequency and then kind of duration of treatment. And so the goal, though, would be sustained seizure freedom, so no more seizures after medications are started. And so once a clinician thinks that a patient might have drug-resistant epilepsy, the first step is to evaluate the kind of the type of seizure, type of epilepsy a patient has, as well as evaluate if the medication is most appropriate. Because sometimes um, if the wrong anti-seizure medication is selected, then the patient's going to keep having seizures and might be mislabeled as having drug-resistant epilepsy when it's really just inappropriate therapy to start with. 
And so once this has been clarified, then we can be more confident that we're dealing with drug-resistant epilepsy and then evaluate if a patient has received adequate trials, quote-unquote adequate trials of anti-seizure medications. And so that adequate trial would be of trying to at least two different anti-seizure medications. And this includes what they say is the mode of intervention. So it could be the formulation, the dose, the dosing interval. So making sure all of that's appropriate, the duration of exposure. And if um, there were efforts to optimize the dose, because we haven't been able to optimize the dose and get patients on um, a, a dose that was studied in clinical trials or has been shown to reduce seizure frequency, then we would, would not be able to say that it's an adequate trial. And then the other thing to keep in mind is patients can try these medications as monotherapy. So they just be on one agent and then switch to another agent or could add on a second agent to the first agent. So again, either monotherapy or in combination. And then the other thing I want to highlight here is if a medication's been discontinued because of adverse effects, not because of lack of seizure control, we would not call this a failure of, of treatment. And so the patient wouldn't necessarily have drug-resistant epilepsy. So as a pharmacist, as the medication experts, there's a lot of background digging that we can do here just to make sure that we are appropriately labeling a patient's epilepsy as drug-resistant only if it uh, the, the reason that they still have seizures isn't due to some other cause. So a lot, is, a lot goes into defining and recognizing drug-resistant epilepsy. Thank you for that, for defining that concept of drug-resistant epilepsy. Let me ask you sort of a related question. You know, most clinical trials have primary outcome variables and they have secondary variables. Are we only talking about uh, reducing seizure frequency or are there other, you know, measures and metrics or parameters that clinicians and patients and their families go by in determining whether anti-seizure drugs are uh, actually effective or not? Yeah, another great question. And that's one of the reasons behind our scoping review is to look at a lot of those different factors that clinicians, caregivers, and patients want to think about. So yes, you're absolutely right. In terms of like clinical effectiveness, we definitely want to reduce seizure frequency. Um, most of the studies or many of the studies that we included related to clinical outcomes did look at achieving seizure freedom as well as a 50% or more reduction in seizure frequency. So for example, if someone has maybe 10 seizures a month at baseline, they are started on appropriate therapy and were able to get their seizures down to maybe three a month, they would not be achieving seizure freedom, but they would have potentially a clinically significant reduction in the number of seizures they're having per month. And for every patient, that number is of what's acceptable for them is going to be different. Um, so maybe some patients, it's absolutely necessary to get them to zero seizures per month. But also depending on the type of seizure um, or type of epilepsy a patient may have, it might not be realistic to achieve seizure freedom. And so what we're having to do is balance the number of seizures we can uh, reduce the, uh, a patient having per month, but then also weighing the, the, the tolerability, the side effects of medications. Anti-seizure medications are notorious for side effects as well as drug interactions. And so we're definitely weighing the, the, the risks and benefits there in terms of the clinical side. But then um, some of the other questions that we looked at in light of what clinicians and patients want to also optimize is uh, what we called humanistic outcomes. So these are things like quality of life, risk of sudden unexpected death and epilepsy, or SUDEP is the acronym or SUDEP, if some people pronounce it that way, adherence 
things like that. And then economic outcomes. There's only one study that we were able to include that addressed economic outcomes, but um, we wanted to see, uh, and patients are interested in the cost of these medications and even the impact on healthcare utilization as well. So a lot more outcomes besides just uh, seizure frequency reduction, but that is definitely part of the big picture. I think that's helpful for clinicians. One impression that um, is taken away from reading your uh, review is that the literature on epilepsy is, is, is huge. So I'm wondering, what were your specific aims in conducting this review, and how did you go about selecting the articles to review? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There is a lot of literature out there, um, but we were really focused on adult patients, again, with drug-resistant epilepsy. And then the other piece that we were focusing on is something known as rational polytherapy. Uh, this term was coined a number of years ago now, but um, the idea that we want to be uh, strategic in selecting um, anti-seizure medications that will kind of compound together to enhance efficacy while potentially um, and hopefully reducing any tolerability issues by leveraging the, the two different mechanisms of actions and medications as compared to just pursuing monotherapy because for some patients that might not be realistic. So rational polytherapy was another area of interest, but um, not many studies looked at that specifically. And so really our main objective was just to identify and summarize the current literature related to rational polytherapy among patients prescribed two or more anti-seizure medications. And so we set out to summarize the clinical outcomes um, as well as health-related economic and humanistic outcomes related to or for patients who um, were identified as having drug-resistant epilepsy in the literature. In light of that, we wanted to kind of summarize how are researchers defining drug-resistant epilepsy? How are they enrolling patients in their studies and then um, applying that in patient care? And then finally, we wanted to identify any gaps in the literature because while you're right, there is a lot of epilepsy literature out there. There are definitely, as we found, some gaps specifically related to this patient population that would be helpful to empower pharmacists and the, and the medical team to make informed evidence-based decisions related to choosing anti-seizure medications in this population. So in order to select these articles, we worked, we worked with a research librarian to refine our search strategy just to make sure we didn't miss any related papers. Um, we did focus, like I said, on adult patients ages 18 and older, and that was just for the purpose of our, our paper. And then we kind of followed the standard review process for scoping reviews um, using two re uh, reviewers to agree on it, including or excluding abstracts and then uh, full text review in that two-step process. And so a third reviewer uh, helped be able to uh, clear up any maybe disagreements between those two reviewers. So it was a neat process to go through and try to do it systematically so we didn't miss anything. Mackenzie, just, just so the, the readers are, are clear, um, you mentioned earlier about uh, drugs with different mechanisms of action. And so that seems a very logical approach to combining uh, treatment with more than one anti-seizure medication. But the literature, does, does it refer in, to, and have there been clinical trials of combinations of more than two uh, anti-seizure medications, something like three or more? What's what are you typically thinking when you mention uh, polytherapy or what should clinicians be thinking? Yeah. So when the first anti-seizure medications were available, most of them all had very similar mechanisms of action. And so 
for patients who weren't able to uh, have seizures controlled on one medication. Uh, when another seizure medication was added, sometimes it had the same mechanism um, and potentially caused patients to have more side effects and didn't necessarily target, yeah, didn't target a different mechanism for controlling the seizure. So as newer seizure medications have been uh, made available, this idea of rational polytherapy is now much more feasible. And so in that sense, we've come a long way um, over the years. But in terms of your question related to how does the literature define polytherapy, it is defined as two or more anti-seizure medications combined. In terms of what studies have looked at specifically, this we'll talk about gaps uh, in a little bit, but I think this is definitely a gap in the literature because only a handful of studies that we reviewed specifically named the combination of anti-seizure medications they looked at. Those were valproic acid and lamotrigine as one combination, and then topiramate and oxcarbazepine as another combination. Outside of those manuscripts, researchers just um, were looking at maybe one specific anti-seizure medication compared to placebo for randomized controlled trials. And then in their like baseline characteristics, they would summarize the number of patients that were on one additional medication or two, three, four, five plus medications. So once we get there, it, the, the specific anti-seizure medications that, that patients were taking in those studies were not specifically defined. And then in non-randomized studies, typically either the number of um, different seizure medications were named, but the specific combinations were not specified either. So there definitely is an understanding that polytherapy relates to two or more anti-seizure medications, but it doesn't, um, the studies didn't look at what those specific combinations were. I want to compliment you and and your co-authors on your review, which uh, after you identified uh, really thousands of potentially relevant publications that you were able to reduce the number that were really uh, relevant to your aims just down to, to 33 uh, clinical trials. And your publication gives extensive details and summary tables that I think will be very valuable to, to readers. And I'm just thinking perhaps you could just highlight some of the key takeaway points from your results for our listeners. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, like you mentioned, I do hope the tables are helpful for individuals. It was um, definitely rewarding for me to go through each of those articles and just glean um, what I could. And so hopefully this will be a good resource to other clinicians who may not be necessarily um, working in epilepsy spaces, but are caring for patients with that with that condition. So one key takeaway, um, I would say, is that most studies, like I've said, don't identify and evaluate those specific combination of anti-seizure medications for the treatment of drug-resistant epilepsy. And so thus, as pharmacists and as the medical team, it is challenging for us to make definitive evidence-based recommendations about the specific combination of medications that would be most effective, both in terms of clinical outcomes, humanistic and economic outcomes. And then Another takeaway would be that polytherapy, uh, two or more medications, appears to be associated with either no change or even worsening of quality of life, as well as poorer adherence. And on one hand, this kind of makes sense, right? Because um, if patients have, you know, well-controlled seizures, they wouldn't need to be on as many medications, so their quality of life would be improved. Or maybe because they're on on more than one medication, they might be potentially experiencing more side effects or they're just overwhelmed by the pill burden or what have you. 
And then because if there are multiple medications, then they're having to, having to remember to take all of those medications. And many of the anti-seizure medications are um, have to be taken twice, if not potentially three times a day or more. So it, adherence can be challenging. And so patients are, are doing what they can to adhere to those medications. But if as a medical team, if we're able to support patients to control their seizures with the fewest medications possible at the lowest dose that's feasible, then we're going to be helping improve quality of life and adherence. But there are definitely some challenges related to polytherapy. I think your comments have uh, really reflected that there are a lot of situations in which clinical decisions with adequate guidance in the literature just might not be available, and it's much more complicated than uh, just picking out one or two drugs. Uh, let me mention one potential uh, situation and ask you about it. Um, I'm intrigued that some clinical trials report an increase in, in seizure frequency when starting an anti-seizure uh, medication. You mentioned in your text uh, one trial about uh, anti-seizure medications during pregnancy. You know, if, if this situation occurs in the treatment of a, a pregnant patient, for example, with increase in frequency, are there recommendations available to address situations like these? Yeah, they are uh, very difficult scenarios, especially in the setting of pregnancy. And so I think one thing that we can do first is kind of like I mentioned before, is make, clarifying the seizure type that a patient would have or that type of epilepsy that they have to ensure that we're selecting the most appropriate kind of therapy. So if we don't do that, then we might be putting the patient at risk for exacerbation of their seizure frequency. So a patient may not even have drug-resistant epilepsy. We have to evaluate other factors in the setting of pregnancy, specifically pharmacokinetic changes. Um, related to volume of distribution and protein binding and clearance and all those wonderful uh, things that take you back to your pharmacokinetic class in pharmacy school. Given the changes in pregnancies, these do impact um, the efficacy or of seizure medications just because the same dose that a patient was previously controlled with may not be the same during pregnancy. Maybe a pregnant patient is experiencing a lot of nausea and vomiting, and so she's not able to take her medications or she is scared that the medication she's taking might harm the baby. And so um, there could be a lot of other things. I bring that up just so that we, uh, um, as pharmacists, ask more questions before just starting new medications. But if medication was appropriate, if it was identified that a patient absolutely needs to be on another seizure medication, then we do need to work with the patient to consider the risks and benefits, both of the uncontrolled maternal seizures as well as the anti-seizure medications themselves for both mom and baby. And so, I mean, there are a number of seizure medications that have teratogenic effects, such as um, valproic acid, and then not just that, but also like neurodevelopmental delays uh, for children born to women who are exposed to anti-seizure medications and the risk of autism spectrum disorder, as well as intellectual disability. So there's a, it's really important for clinicians to involve pregnant patients to your question um, in the decision about what agents to add, um, when to add uh, medications as well. In terms of resources, the ILAE did publish a report uh, recently in 2019 that addressed the management of epilepsy in pregnancy, which I personally have found to be really helpful. And so the, the authors do identify that the report is based on expert consensus and isn't necessarily evidence-based guidelines, but this could be a good starting place for clinicians if they 
find themselves in a situation where where a patient is experiencing uh, break either breakthrough seizures or uncontrolled seizures in the setting of pregnancy. Dr. Grinalds, let me ask you, you mentioned already about some of the clinical trials that they use combinations of drugs, but the specific combinations were not uh, necessarily identified. What's your, your thoughts? Are there perhaps additional combinations of existing drugs that might be effective, but uh, have just haven't been tested or discovered yet? Yeah, that's a great question. So I do want to highlight some of the promising literature specifically between valproic acid and lamotrigine. I think this combination might not appeal to many people. Um, one, because of the drug interaction between these agents, um, as well, on top of the fact that lamotrigine does require a slow initial tri- titration. And then considering for women of childbearing age, not only the teratogenic effects of valproate, but also um, some of the other kind of long-term, uh, long-term side effects of uh, valproate as well that would need to be taken into consideration. But this combination may be beneficial. And so there were, uh, like I said, I think two um, studies that were included in our review that we were able to include and evaluate. And, and so there's promise there. In terms of additional combinations, with this idea of rational polytherapy, given the fact that we have so many anti-seizure medications at this point, Um, There's opportunity to select medications that really meet the need of patients, both in terms of medication adherence, cost, uh, frequency of administration, potential side effects, as well as drug interactions. So in that case, we do have a lot more options than we did even 15, 20 years ago. But newer agents such as uh, Parampanel, a brand name of Ficampa, uh, this is a newer agent that has a unique mechanism of action compared to some of the older anti-seizure medications. And then medications like levetiracetam, brevetiracetam, and lecosamide, brand names of Keppra, Briviac, and Vimpat are not as fraught with drug interactions. And so these might be beneficial compared to some older anti-seizure medications especially as we consider patients who might require polytherapy. So I think this idea of rational polytherapy is really important for clinicians to consider and recognize that we have a whole host of potential options um, at this point with anti-seizure medications. With so many anti-seizure medications available and and newer uh, drugs that could be used in combination, I imagine some of our listeners are wondering what proportion of patients with drug-resistant epilepsy can actually be well-controlled and their seizures brought down to essentially none or to a much more tolerable level? Yeah, that is the key question, isn't it? And in what what my team reviewed from the literature, it is hard to actually put a number on it. So in that case, I might have to leave you hanging there, but it's an opportunity for medications to be considered, but then also if patients would potentially be eligible. There are uh, surgical interventions that can also be done that have uh, a much higher rate of achieving seizure freedom than even medications do. So this is definitely an opportunity for the interplay of both pharmacologic as well as non-pharmacologic interventions. Well, it sounds like there's a lot uh, remaining to be done in this field in the treatment of drug-resistant epilepsy. And uh, hopefully some of our listeners might be in a position to conduct research uh, to meet some of these needs. So just to conclude, are there any additional gaps in the literature that you encountered you'd like to bring to the attention of uh, listeners? Yes, absolutely. 
I would definitely encourage people to read the paper to, to look more at this, but some of the gaps that I'd love to see um, pharmacists and clinicians address would be trying to look at those specific combinations of anti-seizure medications that enhance efficacy and minimize side effects and enhance tolerability as well. There seem to be some conflicting reports um, about the association between sudden unexpected death in epilepsy and specific anti-seizure medications or polytherapy in general. So potentially larger population-based studies might be necessary to help clarify this relationship. And then finally, um, the impact of specific anti-seizure medication combinations on economic outcomes, specifically in the United States, has not been well documented. There have been some papers looking at retention rates and healthcare utilization, which were not specifically focused on drug-resistant epilepsy. We're not included in this paper, in our paper specifically, but these papers did group medications based on class and didn't look at specific combinations of anti-seizure medications. So there's definitely um, opportunities looking at clinical, humanistic, and economic outcomes. So depending on our listeners' preferences, um, there's lots of opportunities for research. Thank you again and your team of co-authors for making this contribution to the pharmacotherapy literature and uh, remind the listeners that there is uh, much more in-depth data uh, analysis and in the paper, which can be found on the pharmacotherapy website. And thank you as well for participating in the podcast today and the most enlightening comments. Thank you again.